Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Uh, what, is your, what is your job? Oh, <laughs> I'm an attorney. You're an attorney. Yeah. What is your job? My job is I'm a pastor here at Loma Linda University Church. My job, I'm a musician. Yeah, I'm a nurse practitioner, but mostly a mom. Oh, I am a registered nurse. Uh, what is your job? I work at the Eureach Cafe as a cashier. I'm a retired contractor. What is your job? I'm a dentist. Uh, what are some of the qualifications that you had to go through to become an attorney? First, you gotta get your undergraduate degree. Then you gotta um, go to law school. Uh, then you gotta pass the bar. Okay, and is that it? Yeah, I mean, you gotta get a job. Like. <laughs> so I had to go through four years of undergraduate study. I went to through two years in a master's program, classes in history of the church, theology, philosophy, uh, religious studies, psychology, counseling. What are the qualifications that you had to go through to become a dentist? Ooh. Lots of science classes that I hated. But it was worth it in the end? It will be. <laughs> Back then, when you were in the academy, you had to work to pay your school bill. <laughs> and so I didn't probably work enough to pay my bill. I had my dad help a little bit. <laughs> uh, people, person, personality, uh, talk a lot. I do, and um, be bubbly, I am. <laughs> Another two years in a master's program, first one in Old Testament and ethics, the second one in theological studies, and then I went through another four years. We do uh, hermeneutics, we do classes in exegesis, biblical Hebrew, Greek, with those four subclasses. Oh, I went to school for so long and it was worth it. It's a myriad, myriad of classes that you all can take um, if you want to suffer for a long time with really low pay. <laughs> Small town prosecuting attorney was starting a trial and he walked up to the first witness in the box, older grandmotherly looking lady, and he asked her the question, do you know who I am? She said, yes, I do. I've watched you grow up in this town, and frankly, you've been a disappointment to me. You started out fairly well, but you kind of got messed up in high school, and after that, I don't know what happened to you. You were all over the place. Now I wouldn't trust you further than I could throw you. Well, he, he was aghast, stunned that she would answer that way, and trying to recover, he glanced around the courtroom, and his eyes happened to fall on the defense attorney. So he pointed at him and said, do you know him? She said, yes, I do. I used to babysit him when he was a kid. He was a total disaster. I mean, he was always in trouble, and this held true all the way through life. I think he drank his way through college and through law school. I don't even know how they let him in the courtroom. By then, the defense attorney was aghast. 
The judge banged his gavel and called a break, and he said to the attorneys, approach the bar, we need to have a sidebar. They came up, both looking stunned, and the judge looked at them severely, and in a quiet but menacing tone, he said to them, if either of you ask if she knows me, I will have you jailed for contempt. <laughs> it's a simple little story, but it makes the point that many times there are questions about our qualifications. Do I deserve to be in this? Do I qualify? Am I included? Do I belong? I asked a friend of mine some years ago, after you've been in a job for a long period of time, how much longer do you think you'll stay in this job? He said, well, I think till I die, move, or get caught. <laughs> and then he just laughed. He was jesting, but it makes the same point. Do I belong here? Am I included? Do I qualify? It's exactly what was on the video. What did you have to do to get the job you now hold? Do you belong? Do you qualify? Now, I'm going to make an assumption. It's not a dangerous one, I don't think, because we are, after all, in a worship service. But I'm going to make the assumption that most of us come before God with the hope that we will receive the favor of God, the smiling face of God, that we somehow qualify. 2,000 years ago, at night, on the hills outside of Bethlehem, the night darkness was pierced, the night's stillness was disrupted by the song of the angels. Here's how Luke records it in chapter 2. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That last phrase leaves me with a question. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. My question is, so who qualifies for his favor? Who is included in that? Are you included? Am I included? Who is included in the favor of God? Now, there is a very clear answer that arises from the world of Jesus' day. That clear answer was that there were certain groups of people who definitely qualified and certain other groups of people who definitely did not qualify. It was saints over sinners, adults over children, the glitterati over the commoners, the wealthy over the poor. But my question is not about the world of Jesus. My question is about the heart of Jesus. In Jesus' heart, who gets included in that group? Upon whom does the favor of God rest? So in this series, the gift for those upon whom God's favor rests, we're going to look through four windows in Luke's gospel. Four windows that will help us see four individuals or four groups upon whom God's favor rests. Now, the first one we'll look at is in Luke chapter 7. We look through a window into a dinner party. 
a dinner party where the people gathered around the table are enjoying, no doubt, a sumptuous meal. It was one of those parties like we just left behind, what, a week and a half ago? Thanksgiving has been described by one person as the season of the year where one species ceases to gobble and another begins. We just left that behind it, and we're already heading into another season like that, and we're thinking, I can't, I can't manage that. But that's what's happening in this scene, a dinner party with everybody enjoying the meal. But as we look in the window, we realize that the spotlight truly shines on just two people. They're the focus of attention. One is a man, one is a woman. Now, if we're to understand from the eyes and lives of those who lived it what happened there, we're going to have to set aside some of our preconceptions, some of our preset ideas. One of those is the word Pharisee. Pharisee. You see, for us, the word Pharisee is a bad word. Don't be so Pharisaical. You're such a Pharisee. We use it to describe people who are hypocritical, who are much more concerned about rules than they are about people. None of us wants to be accused of Pharisaism. But in the world of Jesus' day, while it is true there were those who were that way, the Pharisees, in all honesty, were generally speaking a class of people that were respected. They were the community leaders. They were the church leaders. They were the ones from whom others learned. One might aspire to live the religious life like them. The man is a Pharisee. We'll see that his name is Simon. So as we look in that window immediately, having heard the angels sing, we're ready with our answer. Well, if you're doing it according to the world of the day, the person who receives God's favor is that man, that Pharisee. Because after all, consider your second option. Your second option is a woman. A woman of ill repute. Surely that can't be the recipient of God's favor. So we think we have it pretty well figured out. But wait a minute. Because Jesus is about to do what he often does in the Gospel of Luke, and that is turn things over, upset the status quo. He'll show a reversal of fortune. And we're going to see it right here in this story. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this moment, woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. From the pen of New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold, a brief further insight into the world of the day might be helpful. Arnold writes, Life was far more public in the first century than it is today. And at a dinner party such as this, when interested but uninvited observers were allowed to stand on the sidelines and listen to the conversation of influential guests. This woman, probably a prostitute, is despised not because she crashes the party, but because her sinful lifestyle brings defilement to the gathering. The religious elite would never socialize with or even touch such a person. This makes her actions towards Jesus particularly offensive to those present. There are clues in the text as to why this woman would make them increasingly troubled. She has her hair, her head, uncovered. She lets her hair down so that it's free and loose, just like they accused her of being. She has the audacity, the temerity to touch him, and then not only to touch him, but to kiss his feet, to wipe his feet and her tears with her hair, every action of which would have pushed them further and further back from their comfort zones. And then the aroma wafting around the room. They knew that smell. Expensive, precious, It'd take a working man a year to earn enough to buy that. What does a working girl have to do to get that much money? Can't be good. And so while we are looking at the scene, the answer to our question seems obvious. Who are the recipients of God's favor? The echo from the angel song, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Well, it's him, not her. But two sentences, two sentences serve to upset the apple cart. Seriously upset the apple cart. Two sentences from the book Desire of Ages, the pen of Ellen White, say this. Simon had led into, the, into sin the woman he now despised. She had been deeply wronged by him. Whoa. Suddenly the story shifts. Suddenly we realize maybe things aren't exactly as they appear to be. Maybe what we see on the outside isn't what truly matters. 
Jesus himself knows this because the text says that he speaks to Simon. Just one sentence, I have something to say to you. New Testament scholar Craig Keener underlines the importance of what Jesus says with these words. I have something to say, sometimes introduces blunt or harsh words in Middle Eastern idiom. Jesus looks at Simon. It's as though he's reading his face, reading the judgmental thoughts that are going through Simon's heart. And Jesus looks and says, Simon, we got to talk, you and I. I wonder if, as Maury Vinden said so many years ago, if at that point Simon's palms didn't get sweaty, if he didn't start to almost hyperventilate. What do you mean we got to talk? Okay, say on. What's he going to say? Is he going to expose me? Is he going to shame me? Is he going to humiliate me right here in my own home, at my own table, in public, in front of all these guests? What are you going to say, Jesus? This is your opportunity. Go after him, eviscerate him, finish him off. Our loyalties have shifted. We thought the favor of God was on the man, the Pharisee. Now we don't want any favor of God for him. Now the favor of God goes to the woman, no matter what her reputation. And it's about then that we realize something that Jesus underlines. There really aren't two groups represented here, but one. We thought it was either or, and maybe he's saying it's both and. We thought it was a choice between a saint and a sinner. When maybe what Jesus is saying is there's only one kind. There are sinners that look like sinners, and there are sinners that look like saints. But at the heart, they're both the same. Sinners. Sinners that look like sinners and sinners that look like saints. Both sinners in need of God's favor. One group. The irreverent former atheist, now a disciple of Jesus, Francis Spufford, writes this in one place. Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. This goes flat contrary to the predominant image of Christianity existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. Of course there are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. One group. Sinners who look like sinners and sinners who look like saints. Left to me, my own devices, left to the beliefs of that world and this one, I might first have said, not her, Lord, but him. And then when I found out some of the underpinnings of the story, I would have said, oh, no, no, not him, her. 
And Jesus, in his actions, says, how about both? How about both? One more quote from Ellen White, Desire of Ages. Simon was touched by the kindness of Jesus in not openly rebuking him before the guests. He had not been treated as he desired Mary to be treated. He saw that Jesus did not wish to expose his guilt to others, but sought by a true statement of the case to convince his mind and by pitying tenderness to subdue his heart. Stern denunciation would have hardened Simon against repentance, but patient admonition convinced him of his error. He saw the magnitude of the debt which he owed his Lord. His pride was humbled. He repented, and the proud Pharisee became a lowly, self-sacrificing disciple. And Jesus goes two for two. The sinner that looked like a sinner and the sinner that looked like a saint. And as he does that, and we stand gazing through the window, observing the scene, it is as though we can hear echoing from Bethlehem the song of the angels, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Sinners who look like sinners, and sinners who look like saints. I was a seminary student. I was approached by the young woman who was in charge of the campus ministry group that year. She approached several of us in the seminary and a number of other undergraduate students, and she said, I, I want to do something, a project. It's going to be a worship service for students. I want to base it on this story, the one we consider today, and I want to have some interruptions in the service by sinners who are trying to get in and, and get to hear the message and see if people's attention is diverted or not. And she had this whole plan, and we said, sure, we'll help. I had the privilege of speaking at it. I guess she had a hard time finding actual real live sinners, so she got some other students to play their parts. And so they came in, and the service unfolded, and it was very interesting to see everything that happened. It didn't change the world, but it did affect one student, a fellow student I hadn't even known until that day. He came up to me afterwards. He said, I want to tell you my story. I said, sure. See, I grew up in a, in a home, a good home, a home, Adventist home. We went to church. Mom would dress us up every week. Off we'd go to Sabbath school, church, good family. But I got bored there. I didn't want any more to do with it. I was tired of that. As soon as I got old enough, I said, I'm done. And off I went to live my own life. I made bad choices and then worse choices and then horrific choices. And over a period of several years, my life began to spiral downward. I was headed nowhere, and I was headed there fast. And then one day, he said, I was in Chicago partying. And I woke up. Woke up, my head pounding, a hangover, and the fog in my mind, trying to figure out where I was, what day it was. And as it slowly cleared, he said, for some strange reason, I thought, it's Sabbath. I realized it was Sabbath. And I suddenly had this yearning to go to church. Thought, I got to find a church. So this was in the day before smartphones and so he went to the phone book some of you can ask me about the service if you don't know what one of those is went to the phone book 
and looked through the yellow pages and started looking, trying to figure out where am I and city of Chicago map and, and finally figured this church is nearby. I can go there. And then he looked down, looked at his old jeans, old T-shirt, memories of mom dressing him up. He thought, they'll never let me in looking like this. And he said, this, this kind of battle started in my mind. I got to go. And, and the other side of me said, no, 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 look at you. They're not going to let you. They're not going to want you there. And he said, I was, I was battling this with this, but so desperate that I went anyway. Even, he said, as I walked up the steps to the church, that was still raging in my mind. They're not going to let you in, but I got to get in. So I walked in and there was a man there greeting people, and he greeted me, and I started right away. I said, hey, look, I'm, I'm really sorry how I look. This is not how I would normally dress. He said, no, it's okay. Just okay. Come on in. No, but I mean, I know I look bad. I don't fit in. It's okay. Come on in. No, I, I, I want to, but I'm just so ashamed. And he said the man looked at him and then turned and walked away. He walked over to the coat rack that is always in churches in the northern country. We don't have one here, just in case you're wondering. But always in those churches... He said he walked over there, took off his coat, took off his tie, took off his shirt, pulled out his undershirt so it hung down over his slacks, and he walked back over to my fellow student, now friend, said, come on, we're going together. We'll sit together. And he said, we walked down the aisle of that church, and I discovered I hadn't just walked into a church service. I had walked into a new life. Here he was at Andrews, studying. You know, sinners that look like sinners and sinners that look like saints really aren't all that different. And if you stand and watch that greeter, and that young man walked the aisle of the church. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the angels sing. The song echoes from Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Pharisee and prostitute. It's for you. You know what that makes me want to do? I'll tell you exactly what that makes me want to do. It makes me want to make my way through the gospel of Luke and find those people, especially those sinners who look like sinners, who think that the grace of God isn't for them, and it makes me want to tell them about Bethlehem. It makes me want to go up to that leper who's beating his chest and calling out, unclean, unclean. He hasn't been pushed to the margins. He's been pushed over the cliff. We don't ever want to see you again. It makes me want to go up to him and say, man, do you know what happened at Bethlehem? Have you heard the angels sing? Christmas is your day. It makes me want to go up to Zacchaeus, that man of small stature and large reputation, 
that man who had broken the bank to buy the position that would enrich him at the expense of bilking his fellow countrymen and women, that man who could buy a very big house now, but the hallways were empty, a big table with no one to sit at the chairs because they all said, we want nothing to do with you. It makes me want to find Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, do you know what happened at Bethlehem? Have you heard the angels sing? Christmas is your day. It makes me want to find that woman of Magdala, that woman out of whom Jesus cast seven spirits, that woman who was vilified and ignored and attacked and used and abused, that woman who had no right to be anywhere religious and say to her, woman, my dear woman, has anybody told you what happened at Bethlehem? Have you heard the angels sing? Christmas is your day. Makes me want to find that young man who started with pickpocketing and graduated to much bigger things. His life is on a collision course with a place called the skull where he will meet his fate hanging with two others. It makes me want to find him and say to him, young man, do you know what happened at Bethlehem? Have you heard the angels sing? Christmas is your day. And it especially, especially makes me want to find you. You who come, but who come late. You who hope nobody will speak to you. You who slips in and then slips out, just testing the waters. Is it safe? Because I'm a sinner that looks like a sinner, except today I try to look like a saint. It makes me want to find you. It makes me want to put my hands on both of your shoulders and look you in the eye and say, friend, friend, have you heard about Bethlehem? Have you heard what happened there? Have you heard the angels sing? Because friend, friend, Christmas is your day. Gracious God, we're all the same at the core, deeply in need of your favor. None of us qualifies. And that's why it's just so amazing that preacher or prostitute, Pharisee or sinner, we all somehow are given the grace of God. We thank you for that from our deepest souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.